0: Welcome, everyone. My name is Minoush Shafiq, and I'm the director of the London School of Economics and Political Science, and we're delighted to have you joining us for this online event. I'm especially pleased to welcome President David Malpass to the LSE today. David Malpass is the 13th president of the World Bank Group, and he's been in that role since April 2019. And I have to confess, it's an organization that I spent 15 happy years of my career in. President Malpass previously served as the Undersecretary of the Treasury for International Affairs for the United States, where he represented the U.S. at G7, G20 meetings, as well as on the Financial Stability Board, the OECD, and the Overseas Private Investment Corporation. For today's event, he will be discussing what is needed to build a green, inclusive, and resilient recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic. The current crisis has worsened global inequality and disproportionately impacted those who are poorest and most vulnerable across the world, particularly women and children. So in our conversation today, President Malpass and I will discuss how we can accelerate a global recovery in a way that tackles growing inequalities and improves livelihoods. Some logistics to start. For those who are Twitter users in advance, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSECOVID19. And this event will be recorded and be made available as a podcast afterwards. As usual, there'll be a chance for you to ask questions to President Malpass. And so to submit those questions, please send them to the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen and questions will be submitted to me and I will then convey them. Please let us know your name and affiliation, and we're especially keen to hear from students and alumni across the world. Also tell us where you are. I'm particularly delighted that two of our own LSE students will be posing questions to President Malpass live before opening it up to the wider audience. So with that, I'm delighted to welcome President Malpass, and I'll ask him to deliver some opening remarks to get us started. Over to you.
1: Thank you very much, Baroness Shafiq. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here with you, a distinguished alumna of the World Bank Group, uh, and also with other World Bank alumni, including Lord Stern, our former chief economist, and thanks to the London School of Economics for hosting me virtually. Today, I'll set the stage ahead of the World Bank and IMF spring meetings. This provides an opportunity uh, for for us to engage with partners on urgent matters, including work on climate change, debt and inequality, working toward a green, resilient and inclusive recovery. Let me begin by acknowledging the importance of the United Kingdom within the World Bank Group. The UK is the largest contributor to IDA It is the IBRD's fifth largest shareholder, and I enjoy strong relationships with Prime Minister Johnson, Secretary of State Rob, Chancellor of the Exchequer Sunak, uh, Bank of England Governor Bailey, President of COP26 Alex Sharma, and members of Parliament, Civil Society, the private sector, academia, and media. Our office in London works to promote a consensus around the international development agenda and build a platform for collaboration and shared priorities. More than a year into the COVID-19 pandemic, the scale of the tragedy is unprecedented. 127 million infections, 2.8 million deaths, more than 100 million people pushed into extreme poverty. It's the equivalent of 250 million jobs lost and a quarter of a billion people driven into acute hunger. Besides its immediate harm, COVID-19 is leaving lasting scars, closed schools and physical stunting of children, collapsed businesses and lost jobs, the depletion of saving and assets, and debt overhangs that will depress investment and squeeze out urgent social spending. COVID-19 descended on the poor like wildfire, It was layered on several slow-burning crises, rising conflict and violence, refugee camps, stagnant median incomes, reckless lending, and poorly chosen debt contracts, and damage caused by climate change. Because these crises struck at different speeds, the natural tendency everywhere was to tackle them separately, one at a time without sufficient attention to cross connections that might have enabled a more effective response. The world is developing a better line of sight forward. Our collective responses to poverty, climate change and inequality will be the defining choices of our age. It's time to move urgently toward opportunities and solutions that achieve sustainable and broad-based economic growth without harming climate, degrading the environment, or leaving hundreds of millions of families in poverty. We're calling our approach to these interlinked crises GRID, Green, Resilient, Inclusive Development. In previous addresses, I've detailed some of the World Bank Group's actions in helping countries respond to the COVID-19 pandemic, tackle what I've called the pandemic of inequality, and work toward recovery. These include new COVID-related emergency health programs in 112 countries, vaccination operations that we expect will reach $4 billion of commitments available in 50 countries by mid-year, and a quick doubling of our trade and working capital finance to help fill the banking value vacuum that hit uh, developing countries and private sectors. Uh, Despite COVID related work from home restrictions, the World Bank had record 65% growth in program delivery in 2020, uh, an even bigger surge than the height of the global financial crisis response in 2009 and this elevated level of delivery is continuing in 2021. It's important that every commitment has the greatest possible development impact and robust operational policies and review processes. And we're building a culture of contestability where we encourage our highly diverse, multidisciplinary and globally experienced staff to challenge each other's perspectives and help to enhance the quality of operations throughout both the preparation and the implementation stages. External input is vital too, including from development professionals and schools such as yours. Each of our country partnership frameworks is developed with citizen participation. We're working to help countries build country platforms to engage with a wider group of development actors as they develop the programs we support. External experts frequently participate in the development of our projects and programs. And in the past year, we've taken significant steps to enhance the accountability mechanisms for both the World Bank and for IFC and MIGA. Uh, I encourage each of you to read World Bank country programs, project documents, and our knowledge sharing to think about what works and possibly what doesn't. Good development outcomes in countries are at the heart of the World Bank's mission and activities. The challenge extends to every academic discipline and we need faster progress across the board. And I wanna name several in water, nutrition, education, health, infrastructure, electricity access, governance, regulation, taxation, connectivity, inclusion, tolerance, and a host of other critical issues. I'm going to focus on three of the most pressing challenges today, climate, debt, and inequality. I know climate is on all our minds, and perhaps particularly in the UK, as the host of COP26 in Glasgow this this November. The World Bank is actively supporting developing countries to achieve significant progress on the climate agenda through the lens that investing in climate offers development opportunities. The World Bank Group is the biggest provider of climate finance to the developing world. My first year as president saw the biggest climate investments in our history and investments in my second year are on track to be bigger still. We've set an ambitious new target of 35% for climate investments on average over the next five years, meaning that 35% of the financing within our investments as a whole is supporting developing country climate benefits. To give you a sense of the scale of the ambition, over the previous five years of the World Bank Group, climate finance was 26% of a significantly smaller amount of lending. Our climate financing will be used toward mitigation efforts to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and their impacts, uh, and for adaptation efforts to help countries prepare for negative climate effects. We've set a second important target in that regard. Of our total climate finance over the next five years, at least 50% on average will be for adaptation. I'd expect the share of adaptation to be particularly large in the Ida countries, which currently account for just 4% of global emissions, even as many of them suffer life-threatening climate change impacts. In addition to these high targets for financing, we're working to achieve the most impact in terms of results actual improvements in the trajectory of greenhouse gas emissions and lives and livelihoods saved through adaptation. To help this effort, we're moving to integrate climate into all our country diagnostics and country strategies. Over the next year, we plan to complete up to 25 country climate development reports. We'll aim to include in this first wave those developing countries with the largest carbon emissions and those with the greatest climate vulnerabilities. We're also working to improve results measurement to help make sure that our financing and strategies deliver impact. A key part of our climate action is to support countries with their nationally determined contributions, or NDCs, and long their long-term low-carbon development plans. Countries have widely varying approaches, and we want to help them integrate climate and development as effectively as possible, including through fiscal policy and plans for sustainable growth. For some countries, carbon taxation will be an effective way to help guide capital and respond to the distributive impact of the response to climate change. Every year, G20 countries alone put tens of billions of dollars into subsidizing high-carbon industries. If these billions could instead be used to fund a just transition, just think how much faster we could progress toward a low-carbon, net-zero world. Green growth will involve several key systemic transformations. For example, in energy, food systems, manufacturing, transportation, and urban infrastructure. Each transformation is complicated, But these sectors account for 90% of GHG emissions, so they are key to GHG reduction. One of the most challenging uh, uh, and important transformations is for countries to achieve a just transition from coal to affordable, reliable, and sustainable energy. The bank can help countries with this, but it is complicated for a number of reasons, including economic dependence on coal, worker displacement as the transitions occur, the cost of new infrastructure and writing off many large recent investments, and the importance of identifying ways to provide rapid growth in affordable, reliable, and year-round baseload to replace coal in the national grids of developing countries facing energy poverty. The world needs to make further technological breakthroughs before we can achieve a zero carbon world. Climate presents several big challenges and opportunities for economics, finance, and development. I'd like to mention several and encourage public discussion. First, how does the world help poorer countries make large investments in global public goods, such as their reduction in coal usage? Should the cost be shared worldwide? If so, how? Second, how can national incentives be aligned and financed to help people transition to greener fuels and jobs? For example, using carbon and gasoline taxes. Third, can an effective carbon credit market be created that allows greenhouse gas emissions for some while paying for reductions elsewhere? not just certificates of notional carbon reduction, but actual measurable and sustainable decarbonization. Fourth, how can we properly measure the full life cycle costs and benefits of various climate policy choices? Fifth, how can people in poorer countries best make the necessary but expensive adaptations to climate change, and how can they best prepare for future pandemics and natural disasters knowing that preparation is much better than after-the-fact disaster relief? And lastly, how can the necessary progress on global public goods be best integrated with development and the necessary reductions in poverty and increases in shared prosperity? These are key questions and challenges at the core of combating climate change. The bank is addressing these challenges in our analytical work in low- and middle-income countries and in our rapidly expanding climate operations. I also want to comment on the debt situation facing poor countries. While some progress on debt is underway, including a recent breakthrough in Sudan, many of the poor countries are coping with record debt burdens. Even before the pandemic, the World Bank report on global waves of debt Which studied the causes and consequences of the four waves of debt accumulation that the global economy has experienced over the past 50 years, found that half of all low income countries were already in debt distress or at high risk of it before the pandemic. The pandemic has only exacerbated the debt burden on people, many of whom would be poor even without having to pay the interest and principal on their government's debt. Every day, High debt service payments are diverting scarce resources that could be used for urgent needs uh, for health and education, nutrition, and also climate action. Since the outbreak of COVID, the World Bank has been the largest provider of net transfers to IDA and least developed countries. From April to December 2020, our net transfers to these countries alone were close to $17 billion, of which uh, nearly $6 billion were on grant terms, and our new commitments were almost $30 billion, but much more is needed. The G twenty debt service suspension initiative, DSSI, which I and IMF Managing Director Kristalina Gergieva called for almost exactly one year ago, has helped. It has enabled 43 countries to postpone around nearly $6 billion in debt service payments between May and December, uh, with further savings of up to $7.3 billion expected between then and its current end date of June. Yet so far, the relief has been less than anticipated because not all creditors participated. Large non-Paris Club bilateral creditors have only partially participated. Um, um, uh, And most troubling of all, bondholders and other private creditors have continued to collect full payments throughout the crisis. The recent DSSI experience shows that commercial creditors won't comply with calls for voluntary participation in debt relief initiatives. As the implementation of the common framework commences, G20 countries need to instruct and create incentives for all their public uh, bilateral creditors to participate in debt relief efforts, including national policy banks. They also need to forcefully encourage the private creditors under their jurisdiction to participate fully in sovereign debt relief for low-income countries. There are specific measures that should be considered by G7 countries to encourage more participation. To give just one example, sovereign immunity laws might be amended to include immunity from attachment by commercial creditors who refuse to participate in common framework treatment in which their government is participating. Through the common framework and DSSI, we can identify unsustainable debt where it exists and help restructure it to moderate levels. For countries with high risk of debt distress, uh, but still sustainable debt levels, we should consider reprofiling it by extending maturities, for example. But all of this will require more participation than we have so far seen from the private sector and some official bilateral creditors. As in the climate area, the economic and finance challenges surrounding debt are huge and worthy of your attention and public discussion. First, What are the trade-offs between assistance during liquidity crises, assistance for near-term debt payments, versus longer-term support for sustainability that allows people to make progress against poverty? For which countries is it appropriate to delay principal and interest payments, but without reducing the stock of debt or the interest rates on it? For which countries should the total debt burden be reduced given the low for long outlook? And second, how can accountability be achieved given the differences in time horizons of those signing debt and investment contracts and those people in the country that bear the burden? For example, how can a system of contracts work when it is strongly in the interest of government officials to accept stringent contract terms for debt, even though the long-term payment will be difficult. Third, how should the international financial system operate when there is no no bankruptcy process for sovereign debt? How can the system resolve the glaring imbalance between creditors who have the power and the responsibility to fully enforce contracts and debtor countries who are often poorer and have less capacity to resolve disagreements? Clearly, transparency is going to be a key part of the solution to these problems. The resistance to debt transparency is intense. Airtight non-disclosure agreements often protect contracts, leaving their terms and sometimes even their existence secret. Some contracts include uh, almost the reverse of a collective action clause, a clause requiring debtors to exempt the creditor from any comparable treatment where debt restructuring, for example, with the Paris Club is agreed. In debt, as in so many areas, sunlight is truly the best remedy. Given our long track record in helping countries to address their debt problems, the bank together with the IMF will continue to engage and support countries in their efforts to achieve a moderate debt position. I've I've discussed climate and debt in some detail and some of the economic challenges they present. I'd like to close with a discussion of inequality. As I said at the outset, our response to poverty, climate change and inequality will be defining choices of our age. Inequality is most apparent in the direct effects of COVID that hits informal workers and the vulnerable the most. Uh, And also, in the unequal access to vaccines for developing countries. It is also worsening, inequality is worsening due to the focus of fiscal and monetary stimulus on support for the formal sector and selected assets at the expense of debt owed by future generations. That problem is most applicable to advanced economies, but a similar effect hits the indebted people in the developing countries because sovereign debts and debt rollovers have their biggest positive impact on those signing the contracts, creditors and debtors, whereas the burden of the debt often falls on the poor. I spoke at length about reversing the inequality pandemic back in October 2020 ahead of our annual meetings last year. I explained the work that we are doing to address the challenges posed by inequality including our financial support through COVID related emergency health programs and cash transfer programs. These inequalities raise a third set of economic challenges and I'd like to raise them to your attention. First, What's the fastest, most effective path to better vaccine distribution? It's important for the vaccination process to start in more countries because vaccinations will take many months due to constraints in delivery capacity. The World Bank uh, will have arranged vaccine financing for 50 developing countries by mid-year, but the supply issues remain unresolved. Second, As I discussed in the climate section, how does the world finance the necessary investments in global public goods by the poorer countries? Third, is there any pathway to developing countries uh, for the massive fiscal stimulus and the run-up in national debt being applied by the advanced economies? On the one hand, greater demand in advanced economies will help create markets, but on the other hand, the loss of investments, skills, and schooling during the pandemic has been catastrophic for the developing world. The data is clear that poorer countries are not making the gains in living standards that were expected pre-crisis and are falling further behind. <clears throat> and fourth, because the asset purchases by advanced economies are so large, long-term, and selective, Can the purchases be spread out more fairly to improve global capital allocation, benefit smaller businesses and new entrants, and allow borrowers needing short-term financing to have more access? Let me conclude with this. COVID-19 has brought us to a crossroads. In our policy choices, as we look to the future, we can avoid errors of the past. to repair the damage, we will need integrated long-run strategies that emphasize green, resilient, and inclusive development. This must be aligned with the need for policies that help countries uh, achieve increased literacy, reduce stunting and malnutrition, ensure clean water and energy access, and provide better health care. We must help countries improve their readiness for future pandemics. We need to help them accelerate the development and adoption of digital technologies and we need to work to improve and expand local supply chains and strengthen biodiversity and ecosystems. As I've emphasized during this address cooperation between academics, development practitioners and policymakers also has a key role to play the world faces overwhelming challenges. In some cases, the answers are clear and the challenge is to communicate these clearly to policymakers. In other cases, uh, uh, in academics, including those at LSE, can help to break new ground in tackling the unanswered questions and in doing so, help to invent a greener, more resilient and inclusive model of prosperity for the 21st century. The World Bank Group can be a key champion in helping to address climate change, debt, and inequality, bringing to the table public and private sector solutions, as well as the unique combination of analytics, financial support, and convening power. So today we have a historic opportunity to change course, to improve development outcomes for countries, to overcome the rising dangers of climate change. Uh, of systemic inequality of social instability and conflict. In our efforts to rebuild, we can generate a recovery that ensures a broad and lasting rise in prosperity, especially for the poorest and most marginalized. It's an opportunity that we can't afford to pass up. So I want to thank you. Thanks very much, Minoush.
0: Thank you, David. Thank you for that incredibly comprehensive summary of the biggest challenges of our time. And I wanted to start just by picking up where you ended about the lessons from this year and how what we should learn from it. There are clearly some countries that have done better than others, some approaches that have worked better than others. What would you change going forward, given the lessons that we have learned from this year of COVID?
1: You know, I, 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 thank you. I, m- I mentioned several, uh, but, and so to, 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 to recap a bit, I think we bet need better, uh, analytics, uh, in, in the climate area because the challenges are big and there's a lot of work to be done on that. So that's one. And the World Bank is, uh, trying to really beef up those efforts. That helps countries do their NDCs, for example, the, and you, they're engaged with the Paris Agreement and it's important that they, find good ways in in which to engage Uh, in the area of debt i i went through some of the things you know there there is this oddity call it where we have a world that's based on contract law but we have this odd situation where there's not a bankruptcy process for sovereigns so Mm -hmm. all the rest of the world really has some way if a mistake is made to remedy it and move forward but we don't have that for the sovereign debt area That means that it's growing fast. You know, there's lots more money being put into it, uh, but there's not a way to resolve it when mistakes are made, when a country doesn't do as well as the leaders hoped that it would do or when the money isn't used very effectively. So we have that. Uh, And then I guess I'll I'll mention uh, and conclude on the vaccinations. Uh, You know, this is a huge area, and I mentioned in the remarks that we've got to get, uh, people uh, vaccinations actually started in many countries because some you, you know think of a country if it only has the capacity to do 2,000 vaccinations a week because of the constraints in their healthcare system then the earlier that it can be started the better and I think that's going to be an important step.
0: Well you mentioned vaccines uh, in your talk that the bank had financed uh programs in 50 countries which is not a traditional area for the bank to 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 act in but you also mentioned the constraints on supply and what would you say going forward that we could do to ensure equitable access to vaccine supply
1: it- these are these are profound questions so what we hope we will have 50 countries by mid-year so we're in the process now week by week the board approves operations and then the countries begin uh they have the the money on uh, for the financing and can interact with COVAX. Uh, all of the money can go to COVAX if it can obtain supplies. But as you've seen in the, in recent days, their supply lines for, from, for example, from India are, are, appear to be very uh, constrained for now. So the world is working through these, uh, these contract, uh, uh challenges. I think the single biggest thing that could be done Uh, uh, minutiae too is if there could be more transparency on the options that the the advanced economies have meaning to really put on the table how many how much of the supply are you going to take uh, and then how much is left and then the same thing from the suppliers and their licensees you know they've some of the some of the inventors of vaccines have licensed the production to others. So if each if each were able to have maybe in a in a confidential setting an exchange of views on who has contracts and who is required to to give their their supply to the advanced economies, then that would allow uh, us to see uh, what might be available for people in developing countries. We're I think. The people are working through these problems, but every week counts because of the uh, severity of the pandemic. Yeah.
0: Well, you uh, like with debt relief, you point to transparency and, and better information as being the key to taking a more efficient global approach. I wanted to ask you about debt uh, and the fact that we, the system that we currently have for providing debt relief is arguably too little too late. Similar to the vaccine response, too little, too late. And uh, the question would be, how could we get a better system for dealing with debt relief going forward?
1: Uh, I'm glad you mentioned uh, transparency. I, I really think that governments and, you know, the World Bank is the keeper of one of the important uh, uh, databases on this, the it's called IDS, International Debt Statistics, and so we, it, we we do a a questionnaire, but it's an interactive questionnaire with countries every year to say how much debt you owe, uh, and then now we've started reconciling that with the creditor countries. So we go back to the to the to the uh, lenders and say, do you agree with this data? And so we're trying to have. Uh, accurate data that's pretty comprehensive. Uh, I'll give you one example. You know, in the past, uh, if a central bank lent to another central bank, it was maybe called the swap and it wasn't counted as that, even though interest rate, interest rates might have been charged. And so now we're we're trying to include that in the database so that people can see the true commitments of their of their countries. And then our hope is that by having more information, people will ask about the, the you know what's in between that data, where where are there gaps in the data? We're trying to fill those in. And they might also try to work with countries on ways to improve the contracts that they enter into. One of the big developments in recent years has been, well, uh, uh, I'd like to mention two uh, that have occurred over the last five years or so, which is the routine inclusion of non-disclosure clauses. So, uh, for for the lending that China's doing, they, they're routinely putting clauses into the contracts that say you can't disclose the nature of the contracts. That makes it hard to have the transparency. And another development in recent years is that um, many or most of the big contracts, the big debt contracts, are now collateralized, meaning the governments of the countries are committing the future resources of the country to payment of the debt. And so the people of the country are somewhat left out of that equation. So their country is being used, uh, their resources are being used to pay the debt. And these are very hard for the financial community to untangle. So those are some of the, I think, uh, a much greater degree of transparency. And I think with the force of the G7, the G20, you know, strong backing by the creditor governments would go a long way toward improving or avoiding these waves of debt one after another that have been coming at the world for the last 40 years.
0: No, very good point and without transparency, it's very hard to have fair burden sharing in terms of debt relief unless all the evidence is on the table. Very good point. I now have a question for you from Lord Nick Stern, my colleague at LSE uh, and for another former World Banker. Nick's question is, David, thank you so much for the very thoughtful lecture and for your commitment to bring together the challenges of climate and development. As the shareholders press the MDBs to step up their response to the tasks of tackling climate, COVID, and development, would you agree that the shareholders themselves, particularly from the richer countries, should be challenged to commit to the strategies and resources for the multilateral development banks, which will be necessary over the crucial few years ahead, indeed this whole decade? Thank you, Invest, Nick. Uh,
1: <laughs> Thank, thank you, uh, Nick. Yeah, I, I agree with the thrust of that, that you, you know, I mentioned in my remarks, the World Bank has increased by 65% our commitments in calendar 2020 from 2019. So that's a big increase. And our commitment on the climate side has also had a, had a big expansion to record territory for the World Bank. Of course, we can do more and we're making very ambitious targets into the future. Now, if we turn that Back, w- w- I'm looking uh, forward to working with the shareholder countries, and w- so let me go through some of the ways that we can do that, and we invite that. One is on NDCs. So uh, the, with the developing countries, they're at a point in their in their development history where they're being asked to to uh, uh, to submit or to 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 turn in. Uh, their their commitments to the Paris Agreement in ways that will affect both the mitigation side, meaning reducing some of the some of the dirty fuels that are re, are are being used, and also to do more on adaptation. And so that they need, they, we can really play a role by providing technical assistance. And I think the shareholder countries, both the, the developing countries themselves, can uh, do a good job of these NDCs and and really own it, put it into their development plans in ways that they're able to finance and afford and understand and politically support within their country. So that's important. And then for the, for the donor countries or the more advanced economies, uh, I think they can look inward at their own indices and participate in that effort. One other thing I'll mention, um, uh, to Nick is, uh, is, and I, I, Went into it a little bit in the remarks is the importance of diagnostics. One of the things that we're doing in our new climate change action plan, which is in the process of coming out over the next uh, couple of weeks, uh, is the, is the importance of focusing or prioritizing in both areas mitigation and adaptation. So if if we think about the sources of greenhouse gases around the world, uh, they're, they're relatively concentrated. And so the world needs to think about what is the plan for this particular source of one of the major uh, contributors of greenhouse gases, because it's going to take the world to to focus a lot of financial resources on solving those problems. Some of the big uh, users of coal, for example, right now don't have an alternative to that. So then there has to be a con- concrete plan of how are you gonna finance the transition to uh, to lower carbon uh, fuel sources in order to keep the grid running in those, in those countries. Uh, so that's an area where diagnostics is going to be important. Yeah. And I, so shareholders, have to recognize that as they make the commitments to the net zero environment, there needs to be a much better system for carbon credits and consideration of carbon taxation. Because as as what economics can contribute to all of this is that incentives matter uh, and also that markets, forming markets, has to be based on meaningful standards. So right now there's the concept of, of carbon offsets but not really the reality of that. So people are paying for it and then continuing to increase their greenhouse gas emissions uh, without without actually uh, having a workable market in order to uh, function. So I'll throw those uh, out as areas of interaction with shareholders. And I I could have done 10 more, but I won't (laughs) won't go on. But I think it's very important to think about there being kind of a uh, two-way street between the multilaterals and the the shareholders in terms of making progress.
0: Very good, thank you. And I'm now going to turn over to two LSE students who are going to ask their questions. First, you'll hear from Brian, who's from the United States, completing an MSC in Health and International Development. And then you'll hear from Noor Elashmawi, who's an Egyptian student completing an MSC in Development Management. So over to Brian Allen first. Thank you very much. And and thank you very much,
1: President Malpass, for coming to the LSE and uh, taking the time to take questions from students. We really appreciate it. Um, I'm interested to get your perspective on how the World Bank has incorporated past critiques and criticisms and past learnings in formulating and implementing the COVID-19 portfolio. Okay, that's a great question, Brian, thank you. Um, you, The World Bank, uh, so, um, it's true that we haven't done as big a vaccination operation as the current one uh but the world bank was has been very involved in healthcare really since since the its inception uh more and more in recent decades and that means that there are people within the world bank with immense insight on healthcare systems and health delivery systems and so that was one of the reasons we were able to quickly uh, to move as quickly as we did a year ago. So in April and May of 2020, uh, in the face of the pandemic and with people working from home, we were able to put together a hundred, uh, uh, spec- country specific programs that were, that would finance the, uh, personal protective equipment. So those, th- uh, and other, other direct covid uh health responses so those relationships that's be in part because the world bank has uh relationships in country and offices you know some usually Pretty sizable offices in countries and and people that are used to dealing with the healthcare system, and then also the, we we could bring to bear the knowledge of the vaccination process. Uh, the World Bank over 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 decades has been involved in the vaccinations for for in the treatment and vaccinations. For measles and for polio, for for yellow fever, for uh, uh, and for uh, uh, the treatment of malaria, of of severe illnesses, and also Ebola. And so, those the knowledge of how specific countries deal with vaccinations was critical. So in uh, October and November, when we went to the board with vaccination programs, that the board. Uh, Uh, understood those. They'd been involved in those programs and could help put them together in an effective way. And so then in uh, October and November, the bank working with other partners, with UNICEF, uh, with WHO, was able to do uh, over 100 assessments of vaccination programs in countries. So anyway, that's a a long answer. But the, the point is that uh, there's a huge amount of knowledge on this specific area delivery of health care in poor countries, including rural areas and we're trying to apply all of that almost Every week now, as we bring these new programs forward, just in the last two weeks, we've brought forward vaccination programs for Bangladesh, for Philippines, for Ethiopia, for Nepal, for Afghanistan, and 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 others. And so that's that's just in in the in two weeks, and we have many more coming, kind of week by week. Where and the only way that can be done is to have this network of country offices that know how to interact with the governments they're working with. Great, thank you very much, I appreciate it. Thanks, Brian.
0: Noor, over to you. Thank you so much, Minosh, for the introduction, and thank you, President Malpass, for your speech. It was really interesting, and it's a pleasure meeting you today. So my question is more related to education and human capital. of is needed for home-based learning um, and the disruption caused to education in developing countries, and especially in rural areas? To what extent do you think the current pandemic would have a long-term impact on human capital? And what measures do governments need to take to mitigate this effect? Thank you. <laughs>
1: Thanks. This is a huge problem. At the beginning of the pandemic, there was hope, I think, that distance learning could be made to work. Some countries did that, but many did not. And so, and the school systems or the education system is a critical, uh, linchpin for a lot of countries. It's where girls were safe, uh, and were, were being educated. And then that stopped all of a sudden. And so, uh, you, you know, there, I don't know that we, that there's data yet. But if you think of it, how many how many girls that were thirteen years old or fourteen years old uh, are are lost to the system uh, because of the closure of schools? The schools were also important in nutrition because they often provided. Uh, the, the, some, some, uh, nutritious food during the day for children that are at their vital growing stage. So, uh, I, I'm just mentioning that because, I mean, the core issue is the backward movement in, in terms of literacy and the, the, uh, key building blocks of skills. That's working capital, which you're ask which you're, you're focusing on. But, and, you know, the, the, the education systems often, are are important in these other areas as well. So we've been trying to help countries be ready to reopen as quickly as possible. You know, around the world, different different countries have different experiences uh, uh, of, of difficulty. You know, I, I live in Washington, DC, D.C., and the schools simply aren't open. So uh, a full year has gone by for kids at an impressionable age. Uh, that, uh, that is very hard to substitute when you're looking at a screen. So I mentioned all of those. We're working as hard as we can to help countries, uh, uh, reopen the schools in a safe way and begin the process of kind of recapturing, uh, some of the lost, uh, lost learning. The World Bank has done a lot of several or some reports some of them really detailed reports on the cost of the of the school closures you know and so there are big numbers around as far as the future lost income 10 trillion dollars of income lost uh by the by the impact of the pandemic on education and i i i want to close i i'm really troubled by the impact on uh uh girls and the vulnerable because the one of the One part of the development that's been going on is to try to use school systems as as a a place of safety and advancement for people that are left out by their society. And so that's one of the most, uh, I think, harmful losses in this area, and we're trying to get it back.
0: Good. I've got over 50 questions for you. So I'm going to turn to them as quickly as I can. I'll start with Holly McKinsey, who's an LSE MSC student in international relations. And she asks, UNCTAD estimates developing countries have immediate needs of two and a half trillion to combat the pandemic. You noted the World Bank will make $4 billion available to developing countries by mid-2021. Though the World Bank is far from the only organisation assisting developing countries tackle the pandemic, how can the international community work together to meet this shortfall? Uh, uh,
1: this is the the... the... Age old important question of development that the resources that are available through the World Bank. The World Bank is the biggest in, in most fields by far com- compared to other international organizations, including, uh, arms of the United Nations. Uh, but it doesn't have nearly enough money. And your, 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 your point. It sounds like two point five trillion versus uh, uh, versus a, okay. a few billions of dollars, so exactly right we we need to prioritize the things that we work on, but the bottom line answer to yours to the question is there won 't be enough. Uh, we need, uh, a lot more, I think, from donors. So that's one source, but especially from the private sectors. You, you know, for a lot of the countries that we work in, the biggest source of funds is remittances from their people working, uh, across borders. Um, which is an amazing thing. If you think about it, as, as the people leave the country, they find jobs and they make enough money. That they can send extra home back to their families or to their cousins, their, 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 or, or invest. One of the big, biggest sources of foreign direct investment for, for the poorer countries is their own, their own citizens living abroad who have made enough money that they can invest back in their homeland. Um, So those are trends that we need to encourage. World Bank works hard to try to make remittances cheaper so that there's not such a a spread. I mentioned Sudan briefly in my remarks. We've just, uh, uh, they they were able to uh, unify their exchange rate in uh, uh, About a month ago, as part of the arrears clearing effort that we 've been doing it's a it 's a breakthrough because by unifying the exchange rate, then people abroad are much more willing to put money into the country uh, and so those are steps that are important in Ethiopia and Nigeria yet to be taken because those uh, dual exchange rates block the the inflow so i 've mentioned several things i guess in conclusion uh, to to get enough money for the UNCTAD goals, we've got to recognize that non-governmental sources, not, not even multilateral development banks. It's got to come from the, the people of the country and in outside investors recognizing the value of the climate in the country. That, and, and, and that means, uh, really having systems that allow, uh, uh, foreign direct investment local investment oftentimes the biggest need for the countries is to have the rich people that actually still live in their country investing heavily in new businesses within their country we could think about nigeria it has a huge amount of assets but not enough investment in new businesses and new entrants in women businesses and so on around uh, nigeria so the biggest Single source for this is going to be those people, thems- uh, the 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 investors who have the potential to put money into the poorest countries.
0: Okay, so I've got a question from Joy Bailey who asks: Can constant growth ever be sustainable? Is there a role for degrowth? Uh,
1: no, I I think history shows there will be cycles, but I do think that. Growth for poorer countries can be achievable. Um, and you can think of it as a catch up. I, I think of it as knowledge sharing. If the people in the poor countries know, have access to information, access to electricity, to clean water, and then they can look at how agriculture is being done by their neighbors, and then they can do a better job in agriculture and on up the chain. I, I know this is. You know, there are, there's been a lot of work in development theory. Uh, I think of it in terms of a, uh, of a recipe that you, you know, you have a recipe where you need all the ingredients to come together and then you're able to make that, that, that progress that would be sustainable growth. So I, I guess I want to say, you know, for macroeconomists, there's always going to be some ups and downs, some kind of cycle. But from my standpoint for development, we certainly should be trying to have uh, a world where many of the poorer countries can grow year after year after year uh, by by putting together the elements that make it possible for their people.
0: I'm going to take a final question on climate change from Harriet Allen, who's an LSE alumna. She asks, as companies come out of lockdown, they can reset supplier relationships by, lo- by local and green. How would you advise companies to use their supply chains to be more green? And could a global approach to supply chains actually be counterproductive to tackling climate change?
1: Um- I mean, that's a complicated question. And I, I would say we need to apply diagnostics or data. Let's, let's research, uh, that point, uh, that uh, I guess she is, uh, as she is making. Um, uh, I, I think that trade and commerce, meaning, uh, Villages trading with each other, people within villages trading with each other. You know, there's there's an original concept that you have comparative advantage in something that you know how to do, and the goal, uh, one goal of economics, is to share that with someone else who has a different comparative advantage, and that means across borders as well. So global su- supply chains, I think, should be supportive of a of a of a greener outcome um that goes and i guess i'll i I'll re- repeat one of the points i made that well so diagnostics is going to be important but then we also need to uh keep an eye on prioritizing within the within the supply chain where the most effective use of uh of uh trade is going to be and that gets us into you know th- these Really tough economic questions of carbon pricing and of of carbon taxation and the incentive structure. In order, one thing I think we should do is try to make sure that there aren't global supply chain. Some of the global supply chains probably should be identified as being counterproductive to the green uh, goals that uh, that that people are working toward and so maybe prioritizing those uh, i i guess i i I've, I've wandered around a little bit in my answer but the answer to her is i think we need the diagnostics in order to identify some of the global supply chains that maybe could be could be uh, improved and then other ones i will assert uh, probably are very valuable the way they now operate.
0: Okay. Well, I think uh, we're going to have to uh, to wrap up. Uh, although I've got fifty nine questions now to get. <laughs> but I think it's only fair to um, to to stop at this point and thank you for that uh, that incredible overview of the issues. Uh, many of which you'll be tackling in the upcoming spring meetings and uh, and hopefully with great success. I also wanted to thank the audience for the excellent questions, thank our students uh, for joining in and invite everyone to join us again for future LSE events, which we hold regularly and in which we uh, we entice uh, outstanding speakers from all over the world. President Malpass, it's been a pleasure to have you here and uh, and please do come visit us again, hopefully in person.
1: Minouche Baroness, thank you so much, and thanks everybody for the great questions and the uh, great great interaction. We covered a lot, and I welcome it. And uh, uh, congr- uh, thanks, thanks, LSE. thanks, Minush. Bye.
0: Goodbye, everyone. Take care of yourselves.